This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Thank you very much, Padmadaka. Um, another very generous introduction uh, from you. And uh, it's very good to uh, uh, be with uh, so many uh, spiritual farers this morning, uh, this afternoon, rather. Uh, the title of this talk, for the benefit of Miles, is uh, The Motive Week 2 Remix. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. It sounded good. So this retreat is dedicated to exploring a celebrated 11th century Tibetan work which is known as the Jewel Ornament of Liberation, composed by the very great Tibetan teacher named Gampopa, which means simply the man from Gampo. He, had, he has lots of other names as well, but let's just refer to him as Gampopa, the man from Gampo, which is the region in southern Tibet where he was born, and he was born in 1079 into a family of physicians. That was uh, the family business, uh, and it was a Buddhist family, of course. So he was trained in the family business, so he was a doctor, uh, which would involve doing a fair amount of Buddhist practice as well, and Buddhist study. And he married well. His uh, family married him into a good family. Uh, it's an arranged marriage, of course, as... Uh, happens in a traditional society. They had a child. Some texts said they had more than one child and all was going very well. Born into a well-to-do family of physicians uh, with a good marriage. But in his early 20s, an epidemic spread through the region. A plague swept through Gampo and many died. Tragically, Gampopa's wife and children died. And the stories tell us how on her deathbed, Gampopa's wife urged her husband to seriously take up Buddhist practice. She is depicted as saying, the householder's life is full of suffering. Devote yourself to Dharma practice. And Gampopa did just that. He went forth and around the age of 24, Gampopa was ordained as a Buddhist monk, which is quite late in the Tibetan context. It's quite late on in life to take up a monastic training, but it, he take it up, he did. And he entered a monastery of the disciples of the great Indian Buddhist master, Atisha. And uh, just say a little bit about Atisha and his disciples some generations before Gampopa, Atisha had come to Tibet from Bengal in India, and Atisha had a really vitalizing effect uh, on the Tibetans. Uh, his teachings, in particular, emphasized the great stages of the spiritual path, and in particular, the path of the Bodhisattva, the path of the being who is completely focused on gaining enlightenment, on gaining liberation. Uh, not just for himself, but for the benefit of everyone. So the Bodhisattva is someone not only dedicated to wisdom, but equally dedicated to love and compassion. So Atisha 
uh, made this the centre of his teaching, and this had a very powerful effect, a vitalising effect on Tibetan Buddhism. Those teachings were around, but Atisha really brought them into focus. So Gampopa trained with these followers of Atisha, and he trained very well. He was totally dedicated to his studies, to his meditation practice, and apparently he would spend very long periods, even some accounts say days on end, absorbed in profound meditation. So all is going well from, for Gampopa. He's this uh, you know, very serious spiritual practitioner, doing very well within this, uh, what's called, known as the Kadampa uh, tradition, the school that follows Atisha. After about five years of this, another dimension opened up. He began to have dreams of a strange blue-tinged man, a man with blue-tinged skin, with long, unkempt hair, wearing only a white cotton robe. These dreams just kept coming, and when he told his teachers and spiritual friends about these dreams, they thought it was the sign of some sort of obstacle, some sort of demonic force was uh, coming into his life. The Tibetans would go in for that sort of thing, demons and so on. Uh, but the dreams kept coming. And then one day, as he was walking uh, somewhere, he overheard three beggars, rather rough-looking beggars, talking about a great saint, uh, talking about his wondrous powers. And at some point, they just mentioned his name, Milarepa, which means the cotton-clad miller. And Gampopas, that's M-I-L-A, not miller as in you know, Windy Miller, um, the cotton-clad Miller. So Gampopa's hair, when he heard the name Millerepa, stood on end. Uh, somehow there was a tremendous upwelling of inspiration and faith when he just heard this name, Millerepa. And he just had to find him. He just had to go out and find this man, this yogi. And he eventually got the permission of his teachers to go, they were a little reluctant. They weren't sure about him going off to find this strange, wandering yogi beggar. And it was a long and arduous journey to find Milarepa. He had to Gampopa had to contend with illness and all sorts of obstructions. Milarepa seemed to spend most of his time above the snow line in various caves. But Gampopa did find him. And of course, when he found him, he realised that this was the man of his dreams. Literally, this was the man he'd been dreaming about. This was the cotton-clad miller, the yogi who lived meditating and teaching his small group of disciples, living just on nettle broth, hence the blue tinge. Millerepa, this is the tradition, he drank so much nettle broth that his skin was a little bit bluey-green. Anyway, Gampopa was received very well. Milarepa, it seems, had all sorts of dreams about uh, somebody who was on their way, somebody who would be a great disciple. And it said that Milarepa just poured all his teaching and experience into Gampopa, and he taught him especially the practices, the methods of tantric meditation, particularly the six yogas of Naropa, uh, in it, which includes things like inner heat meditation, illusory body meditation, dream yoga. We're very interested in these things, no doubt. 
uh, Mahamudra, the great symbol meditation. And Gampopa spent about a year with Milarepa and much of the time uh, Gampopa spent in meditation. Um, he'd just go into retreat and he'd just emerge from time to time to tell his experiences to Milarepa and Milarepa would give him further instruction. That's a very interesting account in itself. Gampopa would have these amazing experiences and Milarepa would say, no, you're going one-sided here. No, you're getting a bit carried away there. And he just wouldn't let him get carried away, keeps him on the ground, keeps him focused on the central point. Uh, but eventually Gampopa had gained everything he could. He'd really gone, well, Gampopa's followers would say, would say he went all the way um, to enlightenment. And so he was sent away to teach. And Gampopa is described as the great sun-like, S-U-N, sun-like disciple of Milarepa. And eventually Gampopa started his own monastery and uh, he soon gained a reputation of being a very great teacher. Uh, it's very interesting, his training, his formal Buddhist training uh, in the monastery and with Milarepa probably amounts to about six years, which generally is regarded as a bit short, far too short in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, his followers actually said, well, it was so short because really he was the incarnation of a great bodhisattva predicted by the Buddha in the Buddhist scriptures. You have to do all these things when you know, you're under the kosh from Buddhist uh, polemicists. Um, but what I think we can say is that Gampopa, you know, was really made the, made the most of his training. There was no time wasted. Perhaps his insight into death and impermanence when his wife and children died had been so profound that it just completely turned his mind to Buddhist practice with total dedication and focus. And he really was a very great teacher by all accounts and some of the best minds of the age would come to study and practice with him. It said that Gampopa had four great disciples and from these disciples, the mainstream streams of what's known as the Kaju tradition of Tibetan Buddhism flowed. And that tradition still flourishes. Um, and it said that Grandpopa was a great teacher for two principal reasons. On the one hand, he could lay out the gradual path, the stages of the path, the details of actual practice, the work that we have to do with great Clarity, And he was particularly able to do this because of his uh, Kadampa training, his training with the disciples of Atisha. There's great intellectual clarity in Gampopa, great ethical rigour, and there's a strong altruistic emphasis, as well as detailed instruction on the practice of meditation. A clear map of the path uh, is laid out. But Gampopa also had something else. He had the ability, it seems, to introduce his disciples, if they were recepted, if they were well prepared, if they were well trained, he had the ability to directly introduce them to the true nature of reality itself. Through deep communication he could evoke, spark off, point to the way things are, so that they could actually have some sort of vision of that and work uh, from there. And this ability, this Attainment obviously derives from his training with Milarepa. So Gampopa is that very rare 
combination. Um, someone who, ha- who could teach through clear and detailed instruction and language uh, the, com- the, the riches of the Buddhist tradition. And at the same time, he's the yogi, the profound meditator, able to connect with others and out of the fullness of his realisation, spark that off in other people. A very rare combination. And Gopopa wrote many works, but the most famous, so by far, is called The Dual Ornament of Liberation. And the title of the work tells us immediately what it's concerned with. Liberation, freedom. Uh, liberation from suffering, from ignorance. Liberation from the wheel of life, the samsara. And liberation from the idea that you can enjoy liberation alone. So it's liberation into love and compassion as well. So the dual of liberation then is concerned with the path and the practices of the bodhisattva, of the being totally dedicated to, completely committed to, the attainment of wisdom and compassion. That is liberation as far as Gampopa is concerned. The Dual Honour of Liberation is not a book about Buddhism. It's not a description of Buddhism from the outside, so to speak. It's a book from Buddhism, from the Dharma. It's a book from the mind and the heart of a Buddhist, of a very great Buddhist teacher, whose followers believe that he was, in fact, a Bodhisattva. And he's concerned only with liberation. That's all he's concerned with. And his style is therefore uncompromising, direct and concise, even terse. Um, it's, uh, the, the jewel of liberation is, is sort of styled on an, on an ancient Indian Buddhist literary, literary tradition called Alankara. Alankara literature. And Alankara means something like adornment. And this kind of literature presents the practice of the Buddhist path using the most choice uh, teachings, the most essential teachings and language. Um, So it's like a sort of string of gems. And it does this in a very concise manner. Very concise indeed. It's not a cosy read. Um, If you are finding it a cosy read, well, either you're really tuned into it or... Perhaps there's something missing. Um, It's not a cosy read. It's a manual for liberation. Somebody said to me that they thought it was like an Ikea manual in some ways. You you do this and then you do that and then you gain liberation. Um, And it provides the dual... It's especially pithy teachings that you can memorise and reflect upon. You get these sort of lists and things and, and these quotations from... Uh, Buddhist, classical Buddhist texts of the Buddha and the great masters, especially the Indian masters, that you would go away and memorise. Gampopa had actually, you know, was giving all this from memory himself. He wouldn't have written this text himself. He wouldn't have gone into the library and checked the books. He would have just dictated it. Um, the colophon of the text actually said it was written down by a scribe. So Gampopa's just sitting there, just giving forth. And this text is still one of the main training manuals for the Kajupa school. But it's appreciated by other traditions of Tibetan Buddhism as well. And it's appreciated in our own order very much. 
Uh, it's been important for our teacher and founder, Sandra Akshita. Uh, it's been important in his personal spiritual practice and his own understanding of the Dharma. And in fact, he's done a number of seminars on different chapters of the Dual Norm of Liberation. I think he's done more seminars on from this text than any other. For myself, it's a text that I've returned to on many occasions. Um, I've gone to it for its clarity, its directness, its uncompromising presentation of our actual situ situation and its presentation of what I need to do to seriously practice Buddhism. And I've returned to it for this retreat. Um, and on the first week of the retreat, we had four talks covering the first seven chapters of the Journal of Liberation. And I must say... I found the material, again, very challenging, probably even more challenging than, than before. And once again, I've been struck by the profundity of the material presented, especially regarding the nature of existence, of life itself. Um, very struck by the material on impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. Um, so before opening up the chapters of the work that we'll be considering this week, we'll be um, going in, go, going, uh, beginning with chapter 8. Um, I want to look at the ground we've covered so far. So, far. so this is going to be revision uh, for those who were on the first week of the retreat. Um, and for those who've just arrived, we're establishing the necessary context um, for, 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 for the chapters that come after. So let's go to chapter one of the Dual Ornament of Liberation of Gampopa. So after paying the traditional salutations to the Buddha, the teaching, the spiritual community, and saying that he will rely on the blessing, the beneficial influence of Atisha and Milarepa, Gampopa dedicates himself to writing the text for his own benefit, as well as for the benefit of others. And after all that, he says this. Generally speaking, all things can be classified under the two headings of sansara and nirvana. Sansara is to be understood in the sense that its ultimate nature is emptiness. Its mode of being is bewilderment. Its primary characteristic is suffering. The ultimate nature of nirvana is emptiness. Its mode of being is the end and dispersion of all bewilderment. And its primary characteristic is liberation from all suffering. So right at the beginning of the work you see Gampopa's style. He describes nothing less than all things, the whole of reality, as one of the translators uh, of the text describes it, and describes the whole of reality in highly condensed language. So, on the one hand, there is sangsara, the wheel of life, the endless round of suffering, which in another chapter, Gampopa tells us, is not merely physical suffering, actual pain and misery, it's also the suffering of change, that tension that you feel, if you like, 
because you sense that life will end, that things will pass away. Not only that, Gampopa describes the suffering of conditioned being, that profound dissatisfaction, that feeling of imprisonment and restriction and frustration that comes through being hemmed in by conditioned existence, sangsara. So that, says Gampopa, is the primary characteristic of sangsara, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, misery in one form or another. And the mode of being in this sangsara is one of bewilderment. And this term bewilderment is uh, the translation that Herbert Gunther gives to a Tibetan word that has its roots in the Indian Sanskrit word branti, branti, which can also be translated as perplexity, confusion, wandering about. The mode of being in sangsara is to be perplexed and confused and lost because we do not see things as they really are. We are perplexed and confused and lost because we create illusion. We we create the illusion of permanence and substantiality. We believe that we possess a real, a permanent, separate self. And that we live in a real permanent world of people and things that are outside of us, separate from us. Because of this we get attached to, stuck to people, things. Uh, We think we can have them and hold on to them always and forever. When that is frustrated, there is aversion, even hatred. And so we wander along perplexed and confused, bewildered. As Shantideva, a great Indian uh, teacher said, describes it, blundering along on the roads of existence. And that's what we call living. But the fact is, our lives are based on a basic fundamental error. (coughs) The error of not seeing how things really are. We don't pay attention sufficiently enough and thoroughly enough and with the right emotional attitude, very important this, the right emotional attitude to the profoundly impermanent nature of ourselves, of other people and of the things around us. And Gampopa devotes an entire chapter to this topic asking us to pay concentrated attention to things like the changing seasons, to the sunrise and the sunset, to the way that life is always moving on, always becoming something else. And to ourselves especially, he asked us to pay concentrated attention to the inevitability of death and the uncertain time of death. And in this way we begin to break down the illusion of permanence and substantiality, and we let go of the destructive emotions that are wrapped up with subjection to that illusion. For the ultimate nature of this sangsara, says Gampopa, is emptiness. By emptiness, he means shunyata, which doesn't mean nothing. Uh, Gampopa isn't saying we are not really here, and that in fact there is just a blank space. He doesn't mean that at all. 
Shunyata, emptiness, is really just describing the fact that there is no fixed, permanent substance and self anywhere at all. If you like, there is just a flow of ever-changing conditions forming and reforming. We don't see that, so there is bewilderment. We are subjected to illusion, and so we suffer. That's samsara. Nirvana, on the other hand, the state of a Buddha, of an enlightened and of, of an, an awakened being, is, says Gampopa, the end and dispersion of all bewilderment. There's no perplexity, there's no confusion, there's no subjection to illusion. You see the emptiness of everything with correct vision, with perfect vision, directly, not as an idea. You see it, you live from that seeing. And so you are liberated, liberated from suffering, from bewilderment. Nirvana is the state of complete freedom from being subjected to illusion. And so there's no destructive emotion. There is only creative emotion because we're in tune with the way things are. So it's a state of bliss and fulfilment. You notice too that Gampopa says of Nirvana that like Sangsara, its ultimate nature is emptiness. And this is a crucial point which Gampopa will return to later on. But I must underline that by emptiness, Gampopa doesn't mean that nirvana is a blank, vacuous state, a sort of nothingness. The emptiness of nirvana is really pointing to the fact that nirvana, the state of liberation, the state of being a Buddha, is so spiritually rich and full and radiant with quality. It's so deep and so profound that words, ideas and concepts cannot possibly describe it. So it is beyond thought and speech. In that sense, it's empty. You know what it's like when you see something incredibly beautiful, really very, very beautiful indeed. There's that sort of breathless moment where the beauty is so striking, there are no words, there are no thoughts. Well, that's... You know, that's, that gives you some idea of the emptiness of nirvana. It's very important to understand this because some presentations of Buddhism will, 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 will kind of present it that nirvana is a sort of rubbing out. You're rubbed out and you enter this sort of vacuous, spaced out sort of state. So again, Popa continues. The question arises... Who is bewildered in this confusion called sangsara? The answer is, all sentient beings. Or it may further be asked, from which fundamental stuff does this bewilderment come from? The answer is emptiness. The motive behind this bewilderment is great ignorance, and the bewilderment works in the mode of life of the six kinds of living beings. The similes for bewilderment are sleep and dream, and it has existed since beginningless sangsara. What is wrong with this sangsara? It is a state of continuous suffering. Can this bewilderment ever become wisdom? 
it will do so, as soon as perfect enlightenment has been attained. But if you think, it will disperse by itself. You should remember that samsara is notorious for being without end. I love that. That samsara, Remember that samsara is notorious for being without end. So who is bewildered? Well, it's us. We are the bewildered ones. We are the ones caught in the dream, the sleep of ignorance, of unknowing, of not seeing. And I take it that's really why we're here. We're, we, we're here perhaps because we've begun to kind of wake up um, a little bit from the sleep, the dream, the bewilderment. Or at least we have a sense that, hang on a minute, I'm dreaming. Might even be a nightmare. Or we're beginning to sense that we just don't know. We don't see. But we'd like to see. We just don't know. We're beginning to sense the emptiness of bewilderment itself. Bewilderment, ignorance, unknowing is not impenetrable. It's not a fixed thing. We can, it can be broken down. Spiritual life, Buddhist life, begins when we start to question, when we start to doubt. When we start to doubt the way that life has been sort of laid out, seemingly, for us. It starts when we, be, we begin to question the shape of things. When we start to break the crust of shape, that a shape and form that encloses us. So we can strip everything back, strip everything away. Uh, have a good, clear look at ourself and others and life itself, and what it's for and what it's about. And as I said yesterday, I've said quite a few times on this retreat, this season invites us to do this with the stripping of the trees and the darkness and the rotting down of the vegetation, and the sinking of the year. It, it's a time that invites us to strip away the illusion, the bewilderment, to pay attention even to our dissatisfaction. And Gampopa makes it very clear that this is a possibility. In fact, there is the possibility of even more than that, even more than um, you're just looking at ourselves. Bewilderment and confusion and delusion can be replaced with jnana with pure and perfect wisdom awareness. That is a possibility. But that will not happen by itself. Sangsara just rolls on and not, on and on. It's notorious for that. If you just let it go on, it goes on. And wisdom, pure and perfect awareness, won't just dawn because we've been around a long time. Wisdom isn't a long service medal. You don't get it for just sticking around a long time, being a Buddhist a long time. Wisdom only dawns if we follow the path to enlightenment. So this is what Gampopa turns to next. In fact, the rest of the dual of liberation is concerned with just this. It's concerned with how to gain enlightenment, with how to gain liberation, how to come to the end of all bewilderment and suffering through the arising of wisdom. And the first thing that Gampopa is concerned with is the motive or the primary cause for liberation. And he tells us that the motive 
is Tatagatagava. Sorry, Tatagatagarba. Tatagatagarba is one of those very rich and interesting words that you find in Buddhism that you can't really translate into any one English phrase. Um, I'll just, it's got two parts to it, Tathagata and Garba. So Tathagata is an epithet of the Buddha and it means something like thus gone. The Buddha, the enlightened one, has gone beyond all suffering, gone beyond all bewilderment and confusion and his state is so extraordinary that we can't put it into words. I mentioned that earlier. So early Buddhist texts describe the Buddha as trackless. Tracking the Buddha is like trying to track birds in the, in the sky, trying to follow their traces. They don't leave any traces in the sky. So the Buddha has gone beyond our compre- comprehension. His wisdom and compassion is so extraordinary, so incredible, all you can say is, he's gone thus. He's thus gone. Garba can mean seed, it can mean embryo, it can mean the inner part of something, it can mean essence in the sense of the most special heart of something. So to target a Garba can mean, can be translated as something like the seed of the Buddha, the embryo of the Buddha, the essence of the Buddha. So just bear those meanings in mind as I read from Kampopa. However, if you wonder whether dejected people like ourselves do get dejected, perhaps especially when we see the state we're in. So, however, if you wonder whether dejected people like ourselves will ever attain by our own efforts this perfect enlightenment, you may be reassured by remembering that if enlightenment can be won by effort, it must be within our reach. For in all beings like ourselves, the Buddha motive, the Tathagatagarbha, is present. So if you've been thinking that Gampopa's vision of life, which has emphasised our bewilderment and suffering, is a bit one-sided, here is his vision, the Buddhist vision, of our deep and extraordinarily rich potential. Yes, we human beings, we living beings, are in a difficult situation. We're confused and bewildered. If you, We suffer. If you feel okay yourself, fine. But look around. Have a look. Um, but although there is this confusion and bewilderment, there is much, much more to us than that. There's something in us, deep within us, that in some way is of the same nature of the Buddha himself. Remember earlier, Gampopa told us that The ultimate nature of both samsara and nirvana is emptiness. In other words, neither of them has a fixed and permanent nature. If this was not the case, we could never be liberated from from suffering and bewilderment. And nirvana, liberation, wisdom, could never be attained. Spiritual growth and spiritual movement would not be possible. Gampopa goes even further. He identifies shunyata, he's following ancient Indian Buddhist tradition here, he identifies shunyata 
with what is called the Dharmakaya. Sorry to be technical here, but Gampopa is technical. Uh, he identifies Shunyata with Dharmakaya, which we can provisionally translate here as the body of reality. And what it really refers to is the essential nature of the Buddha himself, the Buddha as reality. So, Gampopa says, if Shunyata pervades all beings, whether in Sangsara or Nirvana, that means that the Dharmakaya, the essential nature of the Buddha, must pervade all beings as well. This is rather like an idea that you get, or even an image really, a metaphor that you get in East Asian Buddhism, in Chinese and Korean Buddhism. You have this wonderful image that Sangsara and Nirvana mutually perfume one another in some mysterious way. Nirvana perfumes Sangsara. In some mysterious way, Sangsara perfumes Nirvana. Buddhas perfume sentient beings. Sentient beings perfume Buddhas. There's a sort of mutual influence, or you could say there's a resonance between ourselves and the Buddha. But let's not get carried away on these metaphysical flights. This all goes back to something very basic that you find in the earliest Buddhist texts, where you find the Buddha's own, the story of the Buddha's own enlightenment. After his enlightenment, after his own liberation, he had a sort of doubt about whether people would really understand the profundity of his vision and the path towards it. But then he looked out, he looked out on living beings with his Buddha eye, not with any ordinary eye, not even the eye of profound meditation experience, but with his enlightened vision. So the vision that sees reality face to face. And he had a great vision, which he could only communicate using an image and a metaphor. And the metaphor is that he saw, it was as if, it's always as if, he saw living beings, us, as being like lotuses, red and white and blue, growing in a great lake. Some of those lotuses were under the water, in the mud, with their buds tightly closed. But others were pushing up, pushing forth, opening their petals to the sunlight slowly. And when he saw this, it said what was born in him, what really unfolded in him fully, was anukampa. Anukampa, which means literally trembling with. If you like, his actual, fully unfolded Buddhahood, his fully unfolded enlightenment, his fully unfolded wisdom and compassion was trembling with the Buddha potential in all beings. And then he knew that he could teach and he could actually communicate with people. People would understand, they would get it, because they had... Uh, this Buddha potential. And this is what the Buddha's compassion and love is all about. It's very, very important to understand this. It comes from seeing our deep spiritual potential. The Buddha's compassion isn't looking down on others in a patronising sort of way. It's not about that at all. It's not about being upset that others are suffering. It's actually about resonating with, seeing and getting into communication with that deep spiritual potential that we have, and drawing that forth in them. 
So Gampopa, in his own way, following his own tradition, is expressing, like the Buddha himself, that deep faith in living beings, that deep faith in us. We aren't just lost and bewildered and stupid and miserable. We have these vast, infinite riches and possibilities, this vast or limitless potential, actually, uh, to realise We have nothing less than the potential for Buddhahood. That is available to us. That is a possibility for us. There is the possibility for wisdom. Seeing things as they are, always. And there is the possibility of a great love for all living beings. A genuine love for all beings. There is the possibility of freedom and liberation and happiness and bliss and meaning. These are all possibilities. That is, in fact, the essential part of us. It's what we really are. Our own teacher, Sangharakshita, speaks in some of his early lectures, he speaks of it in sort of evolutionary terms, trying to get this idea across. He says, well, the nature of living beings is that they want to grow. They want to unfold. They want to fulfil themselves. They want to evolve. That's sort of hardwired into our consciousness. In human beings, we can't be carried along by nature. That's not going to do it. The, the evolution that takes place, the growth and the development that takes place, has to be engaged with consciously. We have to develop mind, heart, consciousness. And if we resist that, life is very painful and bewildering. So we have minds and hearts that will only, in the end, be satisfied by becoming a Buddha. Now I mentioned when I spoke of the Buddha's vision of lotuses in different stages of development and Gampopa in his text following Indo-Tibetan Buddhist tradition speaks of people being in different kinds of relationship to their Buddha potential. These are called gotras. I might say something about this term a bit later. It's quite an obscure uh, concept in some ways. But the basic point is Some people have a very distant relationship with their potential. Others have some contact with with it. Others have a very close connection with it. They've woken up to it to some extent. But the point is, all can wake up to that potential. Everybody has that potential. Everybody can develop it. Everybody can live from it. So as well, in these, these coming days, you might find yourself reflecting on bewilderment and dissatisfaction and so on, but reflect too on Buddha potential and see where it might be manifesting in your experience. It's not about Buddha potential, Buddha nature as it's sometimes called, you know, isn't about disappearing into sort of flights of metaphysical fancy. It's actually experiential. So it manifests when you feel dissatisfaction with samsara. It manifests when you are longing for enlightenment. It manifests when you're really engaged in searching for meaning. It manifests in kindness, in generosity. It manifests even sometimes when we feel ashamed, when we see that we've done something that has hurt other people, when we feel that we've let ourselves down. Well, that actually is our Buddha potential calling out to us. In so many ways, it calls out to us. So look for that. A Buddhist is someone who lives 
from their Buddha potential. And they see their lives as a precious opportunity to live from that potential. What Gampopa they have, a Buddhist is someone uh, who regards their human life as being what Gampopa calls an excellent working basis for liberation. An excellent working basis for liberation. The working basis, our precious human existence, is the subject of chapter two of the dual ornament of liberation. And Gampopa gives us reflections on the freedoms and riches we possess, which enable us to engage in spiritual practice. He says we really are very blessed to have a human body. We really are very blessed to have the freedom to be here, to have the facilities to practice the Dharma. So he says make the most of it because we don't know how long it will be available to us. We also need spiritual friends. And in chapter 3 of the Dual Liberation, Gampopa talks about the importance of spiritual friends to guide us and encourage us, to inspire us and even on occasion challenge us. And especially, he says, spiritual friends in the form of ordinary human beings, people who are well well versed in Buddhism, both in theory and practice, and who are deeply committed to living the spiritual life, who we can actually connect with uh, in a spirit of friendliness. Gampopa also says in chapter 4 that we need to cultivate awareness of impermanence. There's no time to wait, to waste. And we also need to recognise, and he explores this in another chapter, that our actions have consequences. We are responsible for ourselves. And we need, as well, he explores this in another chapter, we need to shift from self-centeredness to an attitude of love and compassion for others. So this last week we've been exploring these areas. Um, but even this is only preparation. All the topics that we've, dis- we've discussed over the last week is only uh, preparation. I could actually usefully give last week's talks all over again, but um, everybody likes new things. The point is to really live from our Buddha potential, our Buddha motive, our Tathagatagarbha, we need to make a definite commitment to the spiritual path. We need to decisively shift our centre of gravity from perplexity and bewilderment, from blundering along towards an actual spiritual path. And this act of spiritual commitment is called, in Buddhist tradition, going for refuge and the giving rise to the intention of gaining enlightenment for all beings. These are discussed in chapters 8 and 9, and we're going to look at those tomorrow. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.